Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I finished sophomore year of high school at about 5'4", 5'5", and about 135, 140 pounds. I came back for first day of freshman year or junior year at six foot one, 185 pounds. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we're talking to Daniel Moskis, former big league left-hander, fourth overall pick in the 07 draft out of Clemson, and current associate pitching coach for the Chicago Cubs. We run through Daniel's standout playing career at Clemson, where he found success both in the bullpen and in the rotation, and talk his experience playing on a loaded collegiate national team featuring multiple first-round left-handers, including first overall pick David Price. We walk through his career in pro ball, trying to figure out if his home is going to be in the rotation or in the bullpen, dealing with some pretty restrictive and stringent development guidelines while in the Pirates system, and how he felt about Pirates fans who clamored for Matt Wieters on draft day. We also talk about what he's doing now with the Cubs and his future coaching in the pro game. It was a really enlightening conversation. Guy who has a great grasp on his career, the ups and downs, the ins and outs of that. was really fortunate that Daniel took the time before uh, spring training kicked off. Episodes of Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. The top 100 prospects are here. The top 200 draft prospects are here. College baseball is about to start. It is a very good time to be subscribed to BA, so go check that out. And with that, let's talk to Daniel Moskis. All right, joining in for today's episode of Phenom on the Farm, he was the fourth overall pick in the 07 draft out of Clemson, former big league left-hander, current associate pitching coach for the Cubs, Daniel Moskis. Daniel, thank you so much for joining Phenom to the Farm. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. You got it. Um, so before we, we dive into your career, I kind of want to talk about what you're doing just right now immediately, recording this uh, at the end of January, obviously spring training, kind of right on the deadline. I'm curious, spring training for a pitching coach, with what guys' off-seasons look like now, we we see so much about like pitch creation. Obviously, you worked at Driveline, a bunch of guys who spend all off-season in the lab. When you're when you're a pitching coach and guys are arriving for, for spring training, is it are you doing like evaluation, like seeing where everyone is at? Are you actually working on stuff with guys? Like what, what is kind of your process over, I guess the next two months as you guys get ready for the season? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's nice for the first time in a few years to actually have a normal spring training, you know, kind of that full length. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it really got magnified last year with that expedited ramp up. Like there really wasn't much that you could do, um, to work on and there was no communication throughout the off season. And so, you know, you're trying to hit the ground running, be able to assess guys, see where they're at, because you weren't really able to perform any sort of action plans for the off season. And then with three and a half weeks of spring training, you're really left to just like get guys built up and ready to go and handle a workload during the season. And so it was a little bit interesting in that, like, you know, kind of that off season development kind of carried over into that first month uh, or so of the season as you finally got guys built up, able to with handle, uh, handle a workload, and then 
okay, let's see where they're at and see what we can do. Um, while also taking into consideration that they still have to compete and go get guys out. Um, so to circle back to the original question, um, you know, I think that the Cubs do a very good job of laying out the offseason action plans that will then progress into like the spring training action plan. And then obviously once it's opening day hits, it's, you know, really go compete, you know, majority of the focus is on that um, with some, you know, maintenance involved, right? Like you're not going to just let a guy go by the wayside. You're going to keep tabs on everything that he's doing and, and make sure that we can progress him, um, you know, as you need to. Um, so, you know, the, the long story short is do the, do all of the homework on the front end, you know, all the work on the, on the front end to find out what the action plan for the guy should be, then go execute on those action plans. Um, and then once they report to spring training, we'll get them in our lab, we'll get some baseline assessments, um, you know, but biomechanically force plate pitch shapes, you know, all the, the key buzzwords that are integrated into pitching development these days. Um, but it, it really is, you know, it's a group think process. We have a great team. Um, you know, I'm just one small piece to a, to a big, larger puzzle, um, that has input on everything for our pitchers. But, um, yeah, we, uh, we make sure that we, we go with the objective driven approach, find what's going to make guys better, the best version of themselves and, um, and go execute on that action plan. A lot different than 40, 50 years ago when spring training was literally just like get rid of the the offseason beer spare tire and actually get guys into shape. So it, it sounds like you got your work cut out for you. Uh, but let's let's bounce back to, you know, before any spring trainings for you for anything. When did you first realize that you had a future at the next level of baseball being division one or pro ball um, as a player or as a coach, as a player? As a player. OK, um, yeah. as a player, we're bouncing way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just want to make sure how far back we're going in the timeline. You know, but it's been a lot. It's been a while, so the memory could be foggy. But uh, no, it's uh, it was probably between my sophomore and junior year of high school. So I went into high school as like a really, really underdeveloped, hadn't really hit any sort of growth spurts. You know, still hadn't really like gone through the full scope of puberty just yet. I mean, I'm talking like I was like five foot three, 125 pounds my freshman year of high school, like with not an ounce of fat on me, but also no muscle. So, um, you know, I had a lot of growing to do, a lot of maturing to do. And, um, you know, after that sophomore year of, of high school baseball, um, you know, I could always pitch. I was I was good at doing that. I could, you know, move the fastball around and, and change speeds. But, I mean, I was throwing 75, 77 miles per hour. And in Southern California, that's not going to cut it. Even back then, I mean, before the, you know, evolution of fastball velo, um, guys are still throwing significantly harder than that mm -hmm. so um it was at that point i started to consider travel ball because i love baseball like I, I still always had a passion for it um but i needed to improve my skill set and so that's when i decided to get in the weight room and it's just funny because once i got in the weight room i also went through this crazy growth spurt um so i finished sophomore year of high school at about five four five five and about 135 140 pounds i came back for, for first day of freshman year or junior year at six foot one, 185 pounds. Um, and, and not all of that is just muscle. It's not like I just put on 50 pounds of muscle in the weight room, but I mean, an added seven inches of, of height, uh, give or take, and, you know, putting on 40 to 50 pounds, kind of the natural good old fashioned way. Like it paid huge dividends. Um, you know, I saw my velo spike. I was touching 90 by the end of that year. Um, had, you know, still had the same pitch ability and just, you know, started to get noticed. Um, you know, is all of a sudden college scouts were starting to show up at my travel ball games. Um, some random area code scouts were starting to hand me their cards, so on and so forth. 
Um, and so, it, you know, it finally started to take shape that like, Hey, I'm, I'm probably gonna have a chance to play in college, uh, you know, at worst. And like, there's even some, some pro ball considerations on the back end of that. You mentioned Southern California. I know before we started recording, you told me you bounced around a little bit, did live in, in, uh, in the Carolinas a little bit as a kid. How, how did you land on, on Clemson? Cause even if you have roots in South Carolina in some way, that is a, that's a long flight. That is a long way from home that you have to be very committed to staying at that university. If you're, you can't even do that three hour drive home as a freshman, if you just need some home comfort. A hundred percent. Now it, it also, um, you know, wasn't as much of a, a leap of faith. Um, as it sounds, my, my parents are born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. My dad went to Clemson. Um, so he never pushed me there, but by default, you know, when we were watching college football on Saturdays or following college baseball, like we would follow Clemson. So it's been a very good decade for you guys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that it certainly has been. Um, but also back in that time, we didn't have the transfer portal. So, you know, th the commitment meant more back then than it does now. Um, because, you know, if you wanted to transfer back then you had to sit out a year, there was, you know, all sorts of other implications to consider, um, and you know, the process of getting transfer credits worked out, like it was not as seamless as it is now. So a commitment was a true commitment. Um, so circling back to that question, I, you know, started going on recruit visits. Um, you know, I went up to Stanford, I would do the, the local ones as more of like, uh, non-official like day trips where I go to USC, Long Beach state, Cal state Fullerton, et cetera, be able to see those easily. Um, whereas like to go out to Clemson is more of the, you know, official visit type where they pay for your travel, you get to spend a whole weekend there. Um, and so when I went there for my weekend trip, I literally just fell in love with the place. Um, you know, there's a saying about Clemson that there's just something in the Hills because it's a small town. You're, you know, the, the college campus is the town. It's a low population. Um, and you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, but you know, there's just something special about it. Once you get on campus, you go to a football game, you get to experience some of the Greek life stuff, going to parties and whatnot. I mean, just the whole process, the whole experience, you know, you start to create this idea of, okay, can I spend my college, you know, my three to four years of college here? Um, and that answer was, you know, a resounding yes. Uh, and so, you know, I just kind of never looked back, um, you know, just something always tugged at my heart that Clemson was the place for me. And, you know, it couldn't have worked out any better. Baseball not being a full scholarship sport, sometimes like 18 year olds are forced to consider how, you know, how much I'm getting here versus how much I'm getting there and not and not be like with football, it can be kind of just about the school, or I guess now like the NIL as well, but, but with baseball kind of ahead of the game, I guess, and figuring out the finances that way, did you have to do some, some calculation or some weighing, or was it just easy to say Clemson is the move a hundred percent? Um, so yeah, I mean, I could have probably stayed locally wound up with, you know, paying less money for school. Um, but Clemson just was always going to, I think going to be the place, uh, and admittedly a lot of the other institutions I was looking at were far more expensive than Clemson was at Stanford time. famously, not a cheap place to go to school, <laughs> not a cheap place to go. And so no matter how much money you're getting, because you know, it, for even for the high profile guys, you know, like a 70%, 80% scholarship back in that day, in that time frame, was considered very, very high. Um, you know, that was back before roster limitations. And so, you know, if you have 11.7 scholarships like they did back in the day and you're trying to spread it out amongst 35, 40 kids, you're going to run out of money. Um, and so you got to figure out how to prioritize that. And so, like you said, yeah, they were a little bit ahead of the game and trying to understand in the breakdown of 
finances and and getting kids committable offers whereas you know i mean everybody who gets offered a football scholarship is a full ride and then you tack on nil money on top of that in today's world and you know you can make a decent living when you're a college student yeah college baseball coaches no math they are uh they are pros at work in that scholarship allotment so you get you get to Clemson and majority of your career at Clemson, except for like the back half of your junior year, you're in the you're in the bullpen. Most and most of your career in general, even as a professional, you're a bullpen guy. Are there are there habits and like things you work on as a pen guy, especially in college, like early in college, that that help with starting or help develop you as a as a pitcher that maybe you wouldn't get from starting? Because we always see bullpen is like oh it's you know there's like the t-shirt failed starter or whatever like that but are there things that you can learn about yourself as a pitcher in the bullpen that you cannot as a starter um i think that i mean it's a loaded question right i mean it can you can apply it back to the type of learner that the person is you know how they are able to take on information you know as we've you know started to really peel back the curtain on pitching development we've seen that you know a lot of external cueing is more effective than uh, internal cueing, things like that. So I think even as we've learned how we integrate data and technology into our development process, we've also um, really dived into the, you know, skill acquisition side of things, how to skills, how do you acquire skills and then how do you retain skills and, and kind of make those skills last? Because it's not just a, a linear process where like, okay, once you gained a skill, you keep it like there is a certain level of maintenance, uh, maintenance to retain that skill set. So, um, you know, long story short, I, I don't know that it's, it's that black and white where you can say, well, I can't learn this as a bullpen guy versus a starter. I just think there's certain skill sets that there's like a base level of requirement for each role. Um, you know, repeatable delivery command, things like that. You see a little bit more, entwined in the starter repertoire whereas like you know explosive movements high-end stuff you've seen really kind of predominant in the reliever side of things um and then also like the ability to maintain two pitches three pitches four pitches so on and so forth um you know a starter might need two different fastballs a reliever only one um you know a starter might need two breaking balls a reliever only one so um, you know, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily like things that can or can't be learned. It's more about what you prioritize. I would also ask with the, the heart rate aspect of, of being in the bullpen, like running out of the pen into a high octane situation versus like as a starter, you get to, you know, you control the flow of the game from, from start one. It's not as tense on the first pitch as it is on the first pitch of the seventh inning. Often you have run out of the bullpen in Omaha in the Clemson, South Carolina game in the big leagues in the Mexican winter league playoffs, which are a, a riot. Um, <laughs> have you, you know, and especially like later in your career, like you were, I mean, in, in just in Clemson in general, pretty locked down reliever. Have you always been able to keep a low heart rate or are you just putting on a show and you're actually pounding out of your chest in the, uh, in the game? So I would say that's how I knew what my role was. Um, and it's not necessarily anything that I could have couldn't learn. It's more of like what my personality was and what I thrived on. Oh, heart definitely pounding out of the chest, but I thrived on that, you know, like, you know, anxious and nervous energy is actually a good thing for performance and for the human body. And so being able to kind of elevate that level that you can take yourself to physically is something that I was always able to thrive on. Like the bigger, the moment, the better that I usually was. 
And, uh, you know, there's obviously volatility built within that, but, you know, more often than not, if it was like a mop up type situation and I was just trying to get work in, wasn't very good. Um, you know, it just like kind of took that, you know, just extra little like sauce for, for me to really be like the best version of myself. Um, and so while it was fun to try out starting and, you know, I still had varied levels of success there. I think deep down, I always knew the bullpen was going to be the place for me. So I, I guess rank those for me then. Cause like, I, I was kind of looking over your career and like Omaha, obviously like the, you know, the ultimate college goal, Clemson, South Carolina. I've heard great things. Seems, seems like a great series to attend. Um, obviously the big leagues is the big leagues. And then I have, I have watched Mexican winter league playoff games on TV and that is a just a wild, wild scene. So is there, is it, is it easy to rank those as far as most, most anxious, most tense as you're running in? It's tough because when, when you're experiencing those, you're, you're at different levels of your career, right? So when I ran out of the, you know, the gate out of the bullpen for my first Clemson Carolina game, you know, I hadn't really experienced much like that before. And then once I ran out of the gate, out of the door for Omaha, that was my first time experiencing that. So that would probably have a change in how I viewed running out of the bullpen in Clemson versus South Carolina. And then, you know, pitching in Cuba in a gold medal game, um, you know, making my major league debut, pitching in the Mexican league playoffs, you know, all of those things, you know, internationally is just wild. Um, you know, when you go over there and, you know, you're just kind of immersing yourself in their culture and their passion for sports. Like it's something special, like truly special to behold. Um, so it's really tough to rank them individually because they do have, you know, a relationship with them, uh, associated with them. But, uh, I mean, I would say like, I mean, major league debut is obviously special. That's the goal you, you set out for even before you, you start getting paid to play baseball. You know, my mom always jokes that, uh, when she was, you know, when I was like four or five years old, people would ask me what I want to be when I grow up. And I always said professional baseball player. And my mom was always embarrassed. She's just like, oh, come on. We got to like, can you, can you come up with like astronaut cowboy, like something? Um, and then like, lo and behold, I ended up becoming one. And so, you know, that's a truly special type dream come true moment. I mean, there's, there's still only what 20,000 of them in the history of baseball. And so, you know, that's a, it's kind of that supreme accomplishment, um, you know, playing for team USA and getting to represent your country, like, wearing the flag on your chest, like that's a truly special type moment. Um, you know, pitching in Omaha, pitching in the Clemson Carolina series, those are special in their own right. Um, but I don't think they have like the magnitude of the, the other events. And then, you know, on the tail end of my career, you know, pitching in the Mexican playoff, Mexican league playoffs is, is definitely special, but that was more like representing for your town in Mexico. So I, I played in a small town. But they also had ruckus fans that had, you know, the biggest hearts for their team. And so, you know, you, it, you're almost like not wanting to let the fans in the city down more so than anything else, um, which is why like that event would be special. So they're all special in their own right. I don't I don't know if I have a ranking other than I'd probably put, you know, Major League debut at, at probably at the top. That makes sense. And you kind of did my transition for me by mentioning uh, Team USA. So that that 06, that's summer after your sophomore year. That team, I mean, the team's always loaded, but that year specifically, very lefty loaded. Um, there's three first-round lefties, you, David Price, Ross Detweiler. I think Doolittle was a comp-round guy. I mean, he was a two-way guy. And then Cole St. Clair is one of the, the you know better college closers of the last 20 years. Um, right. How much conversation and, and learning is there and like cohabiting that space? I'm sure that's something you 
you know, the longer you go up the ladder, the more other talented guys and there, there's more kind of opportunities to pick each other's brains is, you know, how much about getting better is just learning and picking what other guys, you know, picking up what other guys do. Oh, hundred percent. Um, you know, you've always, you always heard it too. Like, you know, when the, you're the young guy in, in spring training, you know, be seen and not heard, soak things up like a sponge. Um, you know, those, that type of mentality coincides with playing with that elite level talent. And I mean, that, that team, like, yeah, they were loaded with lefties. They were loaded everywhere. Um, you know, there were, there were some very, very special talents on that team. Um, and we also had a great, like close tight knit group. Um, you know, unfortunately at that time, we didn't really know what we know now about pitching. I would have loved to have seen how those conversations would have happened if, you know, we had been, you know, fast forwarded into the future and, and we had, you know, all the knowledge and data that we do now, but you definitely pick up on practices, personality traits, all sorts of things like that. You know, like David Price is a great example of, of someone being on that team. Like the humility of that guy, like I expected him to just be kind of, a, you know, a standoffish superstar who was going to be the first overall pick in next year's draft and everybody knew it, but he was literally one of the nicest, most inclusive, humble guys. I mean, he was the first at the top step of the dugout when a hitter came back from a good at bat He's always picking up defenders for good plays, even when he's not pitching. I mean, he was just, it was special to see that type of personality um, against one of the, you know, what looked like to be superstars in the sport. Um, and so like those types of things are definitely good learning experiences, seeing just how guys go about their work in between starts in between games, so on and so forth, how, what guys do in the bullpen to get ready for a game. I mean, you're always picking up things. There's always discussion going on. Hey, what grip do you use on this pitch? Hey, what are you thinking when you throw this pitch? Um, so you can definitely pick up, you know, little tidbits here and there. I'm curious that you, you mentioned like, if you'd had the, the prior knowledge of what we know about pitching now and so how in a situation like that, how does what we can quantify now with pitching and what we know, how would that change? How does that change how you would learn in a situation like that? I just think the conversations would be different. Um, you know, back then, like we maybe we were talking about like what you're trying to do with a delivery, or things like that, but we wouldn't talk, be talking about like, okay, how does the, you know, how do you hold the ball in your hands to get it to come out of your hand like this? Um, you know, what are you trying to do with your middle finger? What are you trying to do with your index finger? Um, you know, as we've learned more about like pitch design and pitch development, um, those conversations have become a lot more direct, you know, it's okay. What's the desired end goal. Okay. What's the process for getting there. Um, and so just the, the conversations happen differently instead of like, oh, are you trying to like stay back? Are you trying to not fly open with your front side? I feel like the, the conversation was just a lot more simple um, because we just didn't really have the quantifiable data to back anything up. Like, you know, if we knew a guy who spun the ball, his curveball really well, we'd be like, oh, like, you know, what's your grip? What are you thinking? You know, how are you generating this spin? And maybe nothing comes from it, but I think the conversation and the topic of it become a little bit different. Interesting. I yeah, I, I can see, I can see where you're coming from there. Like more, just more in 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 detail as far as the conversation. Um, right. So you you finish out that year with Team USA. You know, you show out well. You go into your junior year. You're a, a top draft prospect, getting a lot of looks. And then, how did the conversation come about where you said, okay, let's let's move you into the rotation? Um, and did you like take draft consideration into that at all? Um, so I was not thinking about the draft at that point. That was, that was not the driver for my decisions. I've always been, or tried to be a team first guy. Um, and so, you know, that, that discussion was centered more about like, am I best helping the team as a closer 
or am I best helping the team as a starter, pitching more innings, taking the ball on Friday night versus, you know, hoping we have a lead and a game to finish out. Um, but the subject was actually broached in the off season. Um, you know, I contacted, uh, you know, our pitching coach and just asked, like, you know, we had lost a lot of, a lot of our starters from the, the Omaha team from the season before had moved on. Um, you know, I think we lost uh, Sean Clark, Jason Birkin, Stephen Ferris. I can't remember if Josh Cribbles was still on that team. Um, but either way, like we had an older starting staff that year um, and we lost a lot of it. And so, you know, we were filling in with, you know, some a little bit less proven guys. Um, so it was more of a conversation that started in the off season. Um, you know, can I help the team more? And, you know, it was kind of tabled. It, it was tabled until, you know, we got through fall ball to, to see how things ended up playing out. Like, okay, who, who showed out, who showed that they're ready to handle the workload of a starter, so on and so forth. Um, and so basically just determined, like, there wasn't really a need to stretch me out. Let me go, you know, slide right back into the role that I'm most comfortable doing um, and go from there. And, and we'll adjust, you know, if, if the need arises throughout the season um, and so we got about, you know, a third or so of the way through the season. And, you know, there just weren't a lot of save opportunities to come by. Um, our starters were a little bit hit and miss um, and, you know, not necessarily dominant like they had been the year before. And so the need kind of arise. They asked me if I'd still be interested in doing it. And, you know, I said, look, if it, if it can help the team, the you know, the most, then why not? You know, I'd already had some like three and I think I even had a five inning outing in relief, um, you know, early in the season. Um, so I, you know, I had built up a, a workload that, you know, you could probably transition and starting with, you know, obviously some careful consideration on not going straight to a hundred pitches or anything like that, but they mapped out a, a, a timeline and a way to get it done. And so we just decided to, to make the switch and, you know, ran with it. Did you find that you attacked hitters in the same way as a starter? Like, did you go about your business on the mound or did you, did you have to evolve in, in changing things? I definitely think I evolved, um, especially from a pitch usage uh, standpoint. Um, you know, it was mostly fastball slider when I was out of the pen, you know, throw two, throw some two seamers and some four seamers. But, you know, the slider was really the secondary weapon that I prioritized and just didn't have much of a need for a changeup. You know, at that point I was, I was throwing harder. I was throwing hard relatively, but also for like the time and era, you know, was throwing harder than most left-handed pitchers were throwing at that time. So a changeup was not necessarily conducive to, you know, what my strengths were and how I was, you know, best attacking hitters. Whereas, you know, going to the starting rotation, velocity dips a little bit, or you have to, you know, face up, turn a lineup over three times. So, now you need a few more options to keep guys off balance, um, so on and so forth. And so I think usage definitely changed and evolved as I, you know, created plans of attack for guys. So with that throwing harder than, than most left-handed pitchers did, obviously the draft interest comes with that, that draft or junior year, it's in, it's in that era before, uh, you know, before the slot system or, you know, before, before hard caps and things like that, where there's just there was a lot more volatility and flexibility as far as how a first round is going to shake out especially when there are a couple guys in that draft commanding you know top talents commanding seemingly you know very high bonuses like out of the out of the norm which shakes things right. up i saw an interview you had given where you thought you were going to go to colorado at eight which is where your team usa teammate casey weathers ended up going when you're navigating that you're 20 21 years old 
you know, you're trying, I know, you know, you're working with an advisor or your parents or whoever, but like you're figuring out what is, how do you figure out what is my number? <laughs> um, so at, at that point, um, you know, I think the, what is my number conversation was, was a better conversation for me coming out of high school. Um, you know, it was less on the radar. Um, there were some teams that liked me, but teams opinions on me varied a little bit more. Um, and so it was kind of, if we can get to, you know, top second round comp pick type money, then I'll forego college, but anything less than that, like a value, the college experience, I knew that I still had a lot of growing up to do. Um, and I really did want to experience college. Um, so, um, that conversation was a little bit different. Whereas, you know, where I was being considered to be picked coming out of my junior year, I wasn't going to try and ask for the moon. It was more of, you know, I it's, I'm at the point where I've matured. I've done everything I need to in college. Like it's just time. If I'm going to play professional baseball, it's time to go. Um, and you know, whether I was picked fourth, eighth, 15th at the end of the first round, like I was still going to get the money that I would have been seeking out of high school and I've already got college under my belt. So it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. My coaches knew that my players knew uh, my teammates knew that. So, um, it really wasn't a matter of if it was just going to be where, um, which, obviously like played out how it played out surprises are a good thing when they happen this type of way. Um, so you actually found out on draft day, found out on draft day. Um, there were, there were a lot of conversations going on through the, you know, late hours of the night before and the early hours of the morning of, um, you know, whereas it seemed like 15th, I think was to the reds. I think that was the lowest that, um, I was projected to go. Uh, and I, that's, I mean, I could be corrected on that. It's been a long time, but I believe that's what my advisor said at the time. Um, but the pirates weren't in a lot of those discussions really like firmly, firmly in the mix. Um, you know, they, they didn't really like tip their hand as to, to what direction they were going. Um, I knew that the Rockies really liked me. They wanted a, you know, more polished college reliever that they could try to rush to the big leagues. Um, and so, you know, that option made a lot of sense. Obviously, like they followed with that pattern, uh, you know, that path and and drafted Casey Weathers when I wasn't available. Um, so it would have been interesting to see if both of us were available, uh, who they would have gone with, who they liked more at that point. But, um, you know, it, it all works out the way it's supposed to in my eyes. So say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With the MLB draft, it's not like the NFL where, you know, if someone t- like you know, a bunch of teens passed on Patrick Mahomes and that becomes a big, a big deal. The MLB draft is rarely like that because half a first round is not going to shake out, you know, and turn into an all-star anyways. Guys rarely get tied with who I got taken over. You had the name Matt Weeders tied to you because of no fault of your own because baseball fan bases are toxic. <laughs> with that, <laughs> and I mean, and, and, you know, Weeders was taken, you know, Josh Vitters was taken in front of you. Like he was taken over Weeders, but there's not as much of a stigma because he was a high school hitter versus you were a deemed a college reliever. 
Um, right. And but with the MLB draft, anyone behind the Orioles could have taken Weeders had they called Scott Boris and said, "We will give him more." It's a, it's a weird yeah. thing. Does it? Is it more? Is that more a fan base thing for talking about that, or does it actually matter to the player? Does it, did it hang over you that there was this stigma of he went right in front of Matt Weeders, who like turned into a good player, but it, he wasn't Joe Maurer. Right. Um, so, I mean, Matt Weeders obviously was a special talent coming out of both the prep and college ranks. I mean, he was um, he was a freak. He was he was throwing he was closing and throwing ninety six. Yeah. I mean, and with like no warm ups, he would literally catch eight innings and then just come out ripping like ninety six to a hundred. It's just like which, you know, like, also we shouldn't do that anymore. Like, guys, no. guys shouldn't do that. No, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, but like, I mean, I. There, it never would ever in a million years cause ill will towards the other player or anything like that. Um, that I think that's strictly a fan base thing. But, you know, I, I've even when asked the question, it's like, you know, what do you think about the conversation? It's like, well, if I was a, a MLB GM, like, of course I would want to draft Matt Wieters. You know, he, he's got everything that looks like an offensively minded catcher, catcher of the future, a guy who's going to hold down the position for the next 10 years for your big league team. So like, of course, that would be enticing. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it gets blown out of proportion because fans are very passionate about what, about their team and the makeups of their team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I dealt with that in the early parts of my career and sadly enough, so I think some Pittsburgh fans still hold on to it. Um, it somehow some way gets mentioned every draft year, uh, or around draft time every year. Um, but I mean, it is what it is. You have zero control over where you get picked outside of if you're asking for an insane amount of money um, or just your performance on the field, which is really the only thing you can control. But you can't control how teams project you or or what they think you're going to look like in the future. Um, was I a reach at four? Absolutely. Like, you know, I was a question mark as whether my what my long term outlook would be as a starter or reliever. But at the same time, if you look at what top tier relievers are getting paid on an annual basis, then like giving a kid a two and a half million dollar signing bonus, if you think he's going to be an all-star reliever for you, isn't really that outlandish. However, if you're in a rebuilding team that's trying to get back to the playoffs, you're looking to build a center, you know, you're trying to build your team around impact type position players and pitchers. And I probably was not that. Um, so like, I get it. I can understand why Pittsburgh Pirate fans were frustrated it seems like they lost a battle to Scott Boris. Um, you know, they have this shiny toy that they're obsessed with. And then it's like you wake up on Christmas morning and somebody forgot to wrap the present and put it under the tree. So like, I get it. I get feeling like the rug was pulled out from underneath you. Um, but, you know, Matt Wieters was a great prospect. He, you know, would have been every, every team in baseball would have wanted to have the chance at drafting Matt Wieters that year. So, you know, it just ends up working out how it could possibly work out. Yeah, well, with that, you you know, the Pirates select you, and then, like you said, there is some uncertainty over what are you going to be? Are you going to be a reliever? Are you going to be a starter? And there's back and forth in that your first couple years in in you know in pro ball, and being able to look back on it now, was there is someone in charge of professional development? Is there was there a better way to have gone about your professional development and and how I mean and how you would handle guys now if if you're you're drafting kind of a guy who's bounced back and forth in college, right? Um, I mean, the the conversation was very open. Um, they had it with me. They they laid out their proposal for, you know, they kind of believed at that time believed in. We developed starting pitching until they proved to us that they're not starting pitchers. 
um, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like there is definitely more of a success rate in going from the rotation to the bullpen than there is from going to the bull from the bullpen to the rotation. So, you know, that concept makes sense to me. Um, there were some things that happened um, in my first year of starting that I did not love um, that were, you know, driven by the pitching coordinator. There was not a lot of explanation as to why, you know, they did some of the things they did. It was just a, you have to do this or we're going to find you money. If you don't fall in line. We've had a few um, stories on this show of guys from that pirates minor league era. Uh, you know, I believe it was uh former LSU punter, Zach von Rosenberg, who said he had to throw 60 fastballs out of 65 pitches. And I think like a GCL right. game or something. Yeah. Not allowed <laughs> to throw uh, off speed pitches till you get to two strikes. Um, they took away my two seam fastball when I'm trying to learn how to be a starter and you take away the, you know, a weak contact early, early account out type pitch. Um, and, and so there was just a lot of things I think they did wrong. Um, and they, they just, to me really didn't have a true like perspective on development. And I, I mean, that carried over for a while They're They're finally as an organization starting to change the way they do things. And I think you've seen, um, some fruits from that labor, but you know, they were behind the times, um, both then and until very recently. Um, and, you know, I think it showed they, they've struggled to develop pitching um, in years past. And I think a lot of that is because they lacked a, a true like process for pitching development. So, you know, it's it, it is what it is. You can't like I said, you can't control who drafts you. You can't control which system you fall into and who's going to be, you know, your coordinators and directors of pitching. But um, you know, there were definitely some things that I would say could have gone better, um, in terms of like my developmental outlook. I was going to ask about that too, because that, that form of development, that the strict structural, this is what you have to work on. This is what you have to throw is extremely anti-competitive and the minor leagues are always going to be number one about development first and foremost. Like it doesn't, you know, you'd rather the, the prospect improves than when the the low a crown it's just it's just kind of how it works but in coming from a program that you, you play in high competitive environments for three years it, it clemson in that program produces a lot of a lot of great prospects a lot of guys who are very ready for the next level you played in in mexico where that's a high competitive environment and it seems like you and a lot of guys go there and get better is there is there a happy medium into making winning important in the minor leagues and make, you know, obviously not a, like a win at all costs, but is there, is there value to treating these games? Like they, they really matter more than sometimes it seems like they do. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a, it's a very good dichotomy, right? It's, you know, development first always. Um, but I think that that could be segmented to like, you know, lower levels of the minor leagues to upper levels of the minor leagues. Um, you know, when you're, when you're in the lower levels, we're trying to acquire skills that make you look on paper, like you could be a big leaguer. Um, so essentially like raising your ceiling. And then once you get to double AA, a triple a, like you're on the cusp of being a guy that the major league team could consider for, for helping them out. And so I think at that point, you're, you know, your focus, yeah. While still on development is also about reaching that ceiling and not necessarily just looking for the next thing to try to develop because you start getting to a you know, a place where attacking hitters and getting outs is the most important thing. Um, now that doesn't necessarily always translate into a trying to win baseball games first and foremost uh, method, but I think that there's probably needs to be 
a little bit more of a separation between like you're in the lower levels. Okay. We don't care if this team loses a hundred games, like our guys need to get better. By the time you get to double A AA and triple A, like you want to teach that some of that winning culture where, where winning does matter. I mean, because it does, right? Like competing and winning games in double A AA and triple A are likely going to help you when you are in the faced with those types of situations in the big leagues. Now it's the first time where winning matters game might speed up a little bit on you because that heart rate's going to be beating through your chest. Like you said, like you've alluded to earlier in this podcast. Yeah. They, I think like the, the, when the Royals, when the Royals put together that world series team, like that was kind of a pinnacle. They won all the way up. The Rays do do that as well. The Cubs do that. Um, I, I think it does pay off. So you, um, you have those first couple years in pro ball, you turn in a good Oh nine and Altoona is a starter, but then it's, then they just, that you get sent back to Altoona as a, as a reliever. When, was that a was that a, a something you asked for? Is it again? Was it an open dialogue, or was it a where we've just decided you are now a reliever? Um, so the the way it was broached in spring training uh, that year was just you know you're going to compete for twelve spots, one of twelve spots, um, and a lot of it I think depended upon the trickle down effect of okay who doesn't make the AAA team, who goes to double uh, to triple A. Okay, because of that, who doesn't make the triple A team that was supposed to and goes back to double A? So um, I was competing for one of 12 spots on a triple A or double A roster. Um, they made a determination at some point in camp that um, they weren't they had enough starting pitching depth and weren't going to need me as a starter. Um, and then I was amongst one of like the the last ones to to end up getting sent to uh, to repeat Altoona, um, you know took the wind out of my sails a little bit because I had a really good camp I had a really good off season and a really good camp. Um, and so I was a little bit surprised that, you know, given the year that I had before, especially as a starter in double a, that I didn't go to triple a out of camp that year, but um, you know, it happens. And the guys that they send to triple a are generally speaking depth for the major league club. Um, and we were still a losing club. So there's probably going to be a lot of movement that year. Um, and so I think they just went with some more, some of the more veteran options who had, you know, either experienced the big league level before or experienced AAA um, and just went the experience route. So moving to the bullpen takes you great in Altoona, pretty good the next year in Indianapolis and, you know, walk me through, get the monkey off your back, finally getting the call. Uh, I was amazing. Um, you know, it, First year, for, I think that was the first full year I had been added to the roster. I, I think I was added to the roster that offseason. Um, you know, had had some success in Major League Camp, had had one bad outing, and then, um, you know, went back to Minor League Camp. I was never expected to make the team out of camp, obviously. Um, but, you know, showed some some signs of what I could potentially be capable of doing. Um, so went back to AAA, um, worked on the things that they had laid out for me that they wanted me to work on. And uh, got off to a really good start in the the month of April. Um, you know, was carrying really good numbers. They had an injury at the big league level, and lo and behold, my you know mine was the name that everybody decided upon calling up. Um, so that's when kind of that dream come true happens. Um, you know, find out after the game. My, it was right the like the day after my birthday when I found out. So pretty cool late birthday. Pretty present. good birthday, yeah. Um, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, happened to be in town, so. We were able to both hop on the same flight to Colorado uh, to meet the team the next day um, and ended up making my debut that night. Um, so, I mean, a whirlwind of a, you know, 24 hours from getting the call to getting to the West Coast and, and pitching in a game. But, um, you know, a truly like special experience, um, you know, something you'll never forget. Yeah. And you you turn in a 
a really solid rookie here. The 24 innings, you're sub three. Um, you know, I don't think the, the, the case per nine are probably where you'd want, but like solid year as you, as you try to make it back the next few years, when, when does your arm start barking? Cause oftentimes before you have TJ is not the first time you, you start to hurt. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the, you know, kind of stat line stuff from that, from that season is interesting because that was the first year where they had me commit to like this really on or out in three pitches or less type of attack plan. So it was like a lot of sinkers early in the count trying to get weak contact ground balls. Um, and so my punch rate was, you know, well below what it had been historically in the minor leagues. I think your um, career rate in every single other season you've had is, is two to three punches higher than, than that. Yeah. Which is interesting. So, you know, it, it, it's just, it's interesting. Like, you know, I mean, nobody was looking at K to walk rate really at that time as a, you know, predictive indicator of success. So, um, they just thought I was throwing too many pitches. I was working too many deep counts. And as like a lefty specialist who needs to be available every day, you know, maybe we can save some bullets by getting guys out a little bit quicker. Um, so it's just funny, the give and take and, you know, the direction baseball's gone since then. Um, but actually the the first time my elbow um, started um, barking was that next spring training. Um, my first live BP, or maybe it was my second live BP. I went out as the second one, because the second one's two innings. When I went out for my second inning, uh, and like the first at bat of the second and I threw a pitch and just kind of felt my arm jolt. And I was like, wow, like that didn't feel too good. Just kind of like a zinger. Um, and I, I mean, I got through the outing, like totally fine. Um, but I noticed like I was a little bit more sore the, you know, the next day and the following days starting to become a little bit tougher to bounce back. Um, so I pitched like two or three more times and then went into the trainer's office and, you know, talked to him about what was going on um, to, you know, get their thoughts on it, see what they wanted to do. We did some testing, got me on a treatment plan. Um, and so things started to get like a little bit better, turned in, in the right direction, but I was still struggling to recover. That was the big thing. Um, and they had noticed some, you know, arthritic changes and developments, um, you know, from some x-ray imaging, so, you know, some spurring, some loose bodies, stuff like that um and limited range of motion but um you know nothing nothing too crazy and then you know we got to as we got to kind of the first month of the season or so the cold weather did not help um still struggling to bounce back velo was down and i finally was just like look i'm i'm not very good right now like my arm's killing me like i cringe when my name gets called in the bullpen like can we can we get some some more imaging on this and and see, you know, what's going on. Um, so I ended up going on the IL for about a month. Um, they did some, some MRI imaging. Um, the diagnosis of that is, I think there were some mixed reviews on, on what it showed. And, um, you know, I don't know if I necessarily got the best, um, medical advice at that time, but, um, you know, I, it's funny because of, you know, I think spent a month on the DL came back pitch for like two to three weeks and then they DFA'd me. Um, and so then I was claimed by the White Sox, finished the year out there. And the same stuff was going on throughout the whole year, you know, struggle to recover, limited range, uh, range of motion, just arm kind of killing me, throbbing at times, um, just getting by on loading up on anti-inflammatories and red hot. And um, so at the end of the year, I was like, hey, I've, you know, I've been having these lingering elbow issues. Um, I've got some imaging from the pirates. Um, but, you know, this is something that I probably want to try and get taken care of. 
in the off season, especially if it's a, you know, just loose bodies, like, you know, shaving down some bone and, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, so they're like, yep, that's great. Um, you know, connect you with a surgeon, so on and so forth. So I, I went to the surgeon, which was Dr. Yo the late Dr. Yoakum. Um, he looked at my imaging and he was like, well, you know, have, have you always had this significant of an injury to your UCL? And I was just like, well, this is the first I'm hearing about it. An injury to my UCL. I had been told it was just, you know, arthritis, loose bodies and bone spurs. Um, and he was like, well, you know, it's, yeah, there's a pretty significant strain there. Um, you know, if you were a younger prospect, we'd probably just tell you, uh, just have Tommy John get it done and, and then come back better than ever. Um, but because you're a guy who's, you know, been to the big leagues and you're, you know, kind of a phone call away, like let's go ahead and just do the cleanup and, and hopefully that helps you and you're able to, to keep going. Um, so I had the cleanup, um, felt better. I definitely felt better. It was definitely an improvement. Um, but you know, halfway through the season or so, um, that next year started experiencing the same things. Um, you know, it was a struggle of a year. And then, um, you know, that off season, I was fortunate enough to sign with the Dodgers. Um, and that was okay. Like, you know, the, the pain was kind of on and off, but then in spring training, I just had an outing where it just like, I, I felt the, felt the whole UCL blow on me. Um, kept trying to pitch through it. Cause I knew I was done for done for a year once I commit to having surgery anyways. Um, and so eventually it was released and, and ended up having surgery and, you know, missed the next, uh, you know, 12 or 18 months, whatever it ended up taking. Obviously hindsight 2020 in every case is different, but is it a thing where you wish you kind of that first spring training when it started barking gone all the way, or is the, is there still validity to let's try to, let's try to avoid surgery at all costs because I'm sure sitting out sucked too. Yeah. I mean, as a competitor, you never want to miss time. Like time off the field is the worst. Um, but at the same time, like if we had known what we know now about, you know, the success rate of Tommy John, the, you know, the rehab return to throw protocols and it being like a, you know, fairly confident outlook that I'm going to return to my previous form, then I probably would have probed a little harder and, and made a better decision. I, you know, the naive youngin in me just took the organization at their word um, and didn't truly, I don't think I truly understood the business side of baseball at that time. Um, so looking back on it, like, yeah, I, w I think I wish that I had, you know, just gone ahead and had TJ right away. Um, who knows if my tenure with the pirates would have ended up lasting longer. Um, you know, you just never know. It's tough to try and, uh, put too much weight on those things, but yeah, you know, I mean, they could have, they could have released you right then too. Like it, sure. like, yeah, hard, to, hard to know. You know, you just, you just never know how it's going to end up playing out. You know, I did what I thought was best at the time and you know, in hindsight, maybe it wasn't the best. Who knows? Well, you, you come back from TJ though, and your, your numbers on the, on the way back, when you started doing kind of that familiar older reliever shuffle, you do indie ball, you do Mexico. Um, you, when you, you go out to a different place each year to, to open up the year, whether that be the, the Mexican winter league, whether that be going to indie ball or, or the Mexican summer league and things like that. What is, what's kind of the goal? Like, what is, what is the hope? Is it, I hope I do well enough here to get that call to the big leagues. Are you completely dialed into, you know, like you said earlier, winning for the, the city of Navajoa or, or pitching any ball? Like what it, you know, are you still having as much fun as you did when you were in the, the low minors on the ascent to the big leagues? Right. Um, I will say this. I, I think winter ball, uh, winter ball in Mexico is a ton of fun. Um, I loved my time down in Mexico 
um, just going out and, and truly just like competing to win every day is, you know, the closest thing you'll get to the big league level, um, where the wins, the only thing that matters, it seems. Um, and so like, that was a, that was an absolute blast. Absolutely loved my time there. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, in terms of like the, the indie ball route and stuff like that, you know, when I went to indie ball in 2015, it was strictly to get endings under my belt, um, after having had surgery and missed over a year. Um, and then to try and find a winter ball job. So, you know, went and showed that I was healthy in 2015, got a winter ball job, showed I was healthy in winter. And it led to me getting the the Padres job the next year. Um, and in that year I was, you know, full first full season back from surgery was healthy, had a great year. Um, parlayed that into a, a really good deal the next year with the Cubs and then wound up failing my physical. Um, and so that's why I went to Indy ball in 2017 as I failed my physical right before spring training, Rosters were already full, couldn't find anybody to to sign off on me. Um, and so, you know, I went to Indie Ball with the goal of, okay, like showcase that I am healthy uh, and just get back into the affiliate ball ranks. Um, and because I did not do that, uh, I mean, I showed that I was healthy. I just never got signed out of there, spent the whole year there. Then I needed to go back to Winter Ball to just make some money. Um and hopefully with the idea of like, okay, I went to winter ball and was able to parlay that into a contract a couple of years prior. Like, let's see if I can go accomplish the same thing. Um, had a great year down there in winter, one reliever of the year, um, but still like did not get the like affiliate ball interest. And so then I ended up signing with the Tijuana Toros of the Mexican Summer League. Um, and that was my last uh, full season of playing. What made you decide that was your last full season of playing? Because you you put up awesome numbers. And and like you said, the Me- the Mexican winter ball league is the best way to make a, a paycheck in North America. That's not the big leagues. Right. So, um, so I went, uh, went to Tijuana, had a great year, um, throwing hard, putting up good numbers, but still again, wasn't getting the affiliate interest that I was looking for. Um, and I had played with a couple guys who had gone to driveline. Um, and so, because of that, I was like, you know, it piqued my interest. Okay, well, is it possible that, you know, there's something that I need to learn about myself, something that I'm not doing that could make me more appealing to, uh, you know, a major league organization being willing to sign me. Um, so I went up there and trained, went through the, all of their assessment, the program. And what I wound up doing is just falling in love with their like theory on pitching development, the integration of technology, you know, the biomechanics lab, the pitch design process, the throwing programming process, all of, you know, all the things that they were looking into. Um, and so I went there, I threw in their pro day, um, threw well, but again, kind of the same crickets on the, you know, major league organization front. And at that time they approached me and they said, Hey, you know, you look like you really love the program. You fit in really well in the facility. Would you ever consider working here? Um, you know, at that time, my only job was to go back to Mexico to play. Um, you know, I had a, a wife and a daughter at that point. And, you know, I was not necessarily thrilled about going back to Mexico. Um, you know, if there's a way that I could transition out of playing and into a job that allows me to be at home for dinner every night, like that sounds great. Um, so ran it by my wife, talked to her about it. And, um, you know, we just basically decided to extend our stay in Seattle. And um, I think it was, you know, the first first uh, week after the Super Bowl that year is when I started working at Driveline. So you went from that to professional coaching, the Yankees organization. Now you're with the Cubs. The thing I always like asking guys who have 
who have the college background too, are you committed, you know, is your goal staying in professional baseball or does, is there any college appeal there? Cause there's nothing like college um, baseball. Yeah. I mean, I would say the only probably appeal would be, uh, this is going to sound bad to say, but like an sec school or, <laughs> or the Clemson pitching coach job. Um, is, you know, is that counting school. on Clemson getting, getting moved into the sec during the next, uh, huge conference realignment? Uh, now, I mean, that'd probably be better for, for football than baseball at this point. But, uh, uh, no, that, that is not dependent upon it. Um, you know, our, our whole family loves Clemson. I still love Clemson. So it would more just be an honor to represent my alma mater, um, on their coaching staff. But, um, realistically, I think my, my path is probably in pro ball still. Um, I think I'll probably try to stay and stay on this side of it. So with that, if you could give yourself a pep talk at 21, right after, right after signing, right in front of Matt Wieters, what, what would, uh, what would that pep talk look like? Oh my goodness. Um, shoot. I have no idea. Um, that's a tough one to, to rewind because my personality and demeanor have changed so much since then. Um, I probably, probably just told myself to, you know, take one day at a time, work hard, be a good teammate and, you know, go compete your ass off. I mean, I, I think I would just hit my 21 year old self in the face. So that's better than, than what I, yeah, I mean, well, I probably should hit my 21 year old self in the face, but maybe that was a given Uh quick rapid fire for you. And then I'll let you get out of here. Favorite minor league ballpark. Ooh, El Paso Chihuahuas. Oh yeah. Heard great things. Uh, favorite big league ballpark. Ooh, uh, because of my debut PNC park, because of my current employer Wrigley field, I will say this like, there's only so many ballparks you walk into and get goosebumps and Wrigley Field's definitely one of them. That place is special. That makes sense. Uh, best hitter you ever faced. Ooh. Um, goodness. Um, well, Dave, David Ortiz hit a ball into the river off me foul, um, <laughs> that put the fear of God in me. So, <laughs> um, I mean him, the Vlad Guerrero senior is, uh, you know, another one that's up there. Um, Derek Lee, Carlos Gonzalez. I faced Carlos Gonzalez was the first guy I faced uh, in my debut, and he was coming off a batting title, so that was a pretty good one as well. When you face Vlad Guerrero Sr. and there's no like he just swings at everything. What do you, what do you throw a guy who swings at everything? Well, I went back to back change up. The first one was like at the knees, dotted on the black, and he balled me, and he showed no interest in swinging at it. <laughs> the next one would have hit home plate except he swung out and lined out to the third baseman. So there has never been a more like Vlad Guerrero at bat than my time facing him. I thought it was great. What a King. Uh, last one. Everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Oh, those are in Mexico. Oh uh, yeah. Hit me with it. Yeah. The, so my team that I played for in winter ball is cheap. Um, a lot of the teams that fly to like the, or that travel to like the, the far ends of the league, they fly. Um, but we bust. And so it'd be like a six to, we, uh, from Navajo to Mexicali is like a 14 hour bus ride. And then, uh, from Navajo down to Guadalajara is like a 16 hour bus ride. So dude, if you can do the math, there's no real like easy way to, uh, to make that trek without just suffering on a bus for a long period of time. That is a nightmare scenario. Uh, Daniel Moskis, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining for being on the farm. You got it, man. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Of course. And that's it for my conversation with Daniel Moskis. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate and leave a review, and we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.